Well, hi again, friends at Hamilton Baptist Church and others who are, who are viewing uh, their channel. It's great to be admiring that wooden construction of a, a teepee in the garden that you purchased at the end of the Ideal Home Show a couple of years ago. If that was you, well done. No garden should be without one, especially if you live in a flat. Now, we were thinking earlier about the, the, the reason that Paul wrote this letter to Timothy in the church in Ephesus. Do you remember we saw in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, I hope to come to you soon. If I'm delayed, uh, I'm writing these things to you that you may know how, how one ought to behave in the household of God. The plan is for the local church to make living in God's household look like the ideal home for the eternal souls of men and women in our town, in our city, in our nation, in our world. Now, no doubt if, if you and I were sitting down to write the, the conduct code for life in the household, it would be pulls apart from what the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write. But we've been reminded repeatedly today that we're God's household. We wouldn't have life without him. We wouldn't belong to him if he hadn't worked in our lives and brought us his salvation. So we trust in him. We submit to his word. He's the boss. And God willing, we find to His surprise, to our surprise that his way really is the best way to live. Now, I've said this already this morning. It's It's hard to imagine a more culturally jarring area of life in the household of God than its local leadership that we've been thinking about today. God's way for his church to identify men whom the Holy Spirit has made overseers is an extraordinary thing. And we were looking at the markers of the basic consistent Christian living that Paul lists in verses 2 to 7. And some of it is jarring, especially at the end of chapter 2. And we didn't get beyond verse 2 of chapter 3 this morning. And we started looking out, if you, if you happen to remember, we, we looked at the, the transition to the elders, to the discussion of the elders, the transition from chapter 2 content to chapter 3 content. Then we looked at the, the task of the, of the elders to oversee God's church, to care for God's flock by teaching God's word. And then we began to look at the tests for the elders. How do the men whom the Holy Spirit has made elders become apparent to the local church? How do we recognise those who are to be elders? And we worked our way through the six positives of verse 2. Uh, the overseer is to be above reproach, meaning uh, living a life that does not reasonably attract criticism. The husband of one wife, meaning that he is to be a one-woman man, sober-minded, serious about the work, self-controlled, he knows when to button it, respectable, hospitable, open-hearted towards people and therefore open-homed. And then that significant end to verse 2, able to teach. Now as we pick up, we're still on the tests. Uh, as we turn from the positives in verse 2, what we're told that we are to be as believers to the associated negatives to the follow-on negatives what we are not to be and these things are to be observable as as the fruit of a life living to the glory of God so have a look with me at the beginning of verse three negative number one not a drunkard well obvious isn't it 
because that would make self-control from verse 2 impossible. Second clause in verse 3, not violent, but gentle. I'll take a little bit more on this. Men who are elders won't throw their weight about. Men who are elders will not domineer by personal force. They won't manipulate. They won't dominate. They won't intimidate. They won't throw a punch. But they'll have to be able to take a punch. They need to be, as, as one has said, tough but tender. Not violent but gentle. Going on from this, the next phrase there in verse 3, not quarrelsome. Paul would rule out of consideration for eldership men who love a fight, who love an argument. And I guess the reason for this is that often the elders have to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with someone. We saw that this morning, didn't we? We looked at Titus chapter 1 verse 9 telling us how the, the elders have to uh, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that they can give instruction and also rebuke those who contradict it. Not with their own authority, but with the authority of God's word. Now in that situation, when you're going toe-to-toe -to -toe with somebody, a naturally quarrelsome person will just love having the argument. Ecstatic if they win the argument. But that's not the issue, because all the while they'll forget that there is an eternal soul to be shepherded in the midst of this barney. Doug Wilson, the American, the American pastor, said something a few years ago that I found massively striking. He said, the shepherd who will not fight the wolves does not love the sheep. The shepherd who loves to fight simply for the love of fighting is a shepherd with disordered affections. And the shepherd who hates the wolves because he loves to hate is himself a wolf. I find that very striking. And that explains why Paul says here, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome. Tone is so important in elders' work. And being quarrelsome, just being opinionated, just being able to beat someone into submission does not achieve the end that we're aiming at. Now, listen to the alternative to quarrelsome. Uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, turn forward to it maybe just for a moment. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 23. Paul says to young Timothy, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know how they breed quarrels and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. What's the alternative? midway through verse 24 but kind to everyone able to teach there it is again patiently enduring evil correcting his opponents with gentleness maybe that sounds a bit namby-pamby very passive oh no it's not there is stunning powerful rationale behind this why are we to correct our opponents with gentleness? Well, verse 25. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. When we're engaging with someone who, for example, may be in danger of abandoning the gospel, 
they may be causing untold chaos in the church. It is a painful and fearful and difficult experience. But elders have got to remember that our, our battle is not against that person. It's not against flesh and blood, as Paul later, later wrote to the Ephesians. When we quarrel, when we argue, we, we do that because we think the power is in our hands. And we don't want to give it away, and so we'll fight for it. But Christians, and, and therefore elders, know that the power is never in our hands. The power is the Lord's, as this text makes so clear. And he brings his power to bear by his word and spirit, so elders don't quarrel. We work kindly, patiently, gently showing the truth as we teach the word. That's why we've got to be able to teach the word because that's where the power to change lives and transform lives is. And we wait prayerfully to see what God is going to do. Right, last part of verse 3. Not a lover of money. I mentioned this morning, Acts 20, Paul's farewell to the elders from Ephesus on the beach at Miletus. And he speaks to them there in Acts 20 about the, the gospel ministry in the local church. And as he does so, his love of the Lord and his love of the church and his love of the gospel is so evident and it has massive practical applications for how he lives his life from day to day from the way of silver or gold himself. Maybe he didn't have the latest swanky gear to wear. And yet he, he says he went from house to house. He, he could go from house to house. And in some houses he would perhaps see evidence of very wealthy people living. He was never in awe of wealth. He was kind of impervious to the kind of longings that drive so much of our culture. And when he wrote in his letter to the church in, in, in Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he said something very striking there. He said, here for the third time I'm ready to come to you and I will not be a burden for I seek not what is yours but you. Oh, that people would get the sense that as elders we're in this work not for what they can give us. That we seek not what is theirs but we do seek them. Paul says, verse 15, 2 Corinthians 12, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. That's what lies behind the phrase, not a lover of money. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now, a little parenthesis. Having said that, the church family has a responsibility to make sure that the men who give their whole time to the work of being elders don't have to worry about money. Check that out in chapter 5, verse 17 to 18. We don't have time to look at it at the moment, but it's there. That's the other side of this business of money and the eldership. Now, when you, man when you examine a man's relationship with his wallet, you're, you're getting pretty up close and personal. But, but we have to do it. And, and now we get into his household. Now we sit at his table. Now we are flying the wall as we see what he's like with his family when the church family normally can't see him. So verse 4, have a look at it with me. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. 
For if someone does not know how to manage his household, how will he care for God's church? Oh, these are such searching and humbling verses. Well, again, this doesn't mean that you have to be a father to children before you have can be an elder in the local church. Nevertheless, these verses indicate that there is no conflict between being a faithful, servant-hearted husband and father and a faithful, servant-hearted church leader. Our families are not meant to suffer. It's not assumed that they will suffer. That's challenging to me. Nor does this teaching here put pressure of greater expectations on the families of elders. This is not a matter of our wives and children being told, you don't let me down in front of the church. That's actually the opposite of what's being said here. Every family in a broken world has problems and challenges that they have to work through. And every church family has problems and challenges that they have to work through. We would no more expect the leaders' families to be perfect than we would complain that than, than we would claim perfection for the local church. I'm sure you agree with the comment that parenting is the toughest management role in the world. It requires us to dig deep for the love and the tact and the wisdom and the strength that it takes to raise a balanced, happy, loving trusting, secure family. How tough is that? How impossible is that, humanly speaking? And in this management role, you don't clock off at five o'clock until the next day. And no one else is going to take it on when you're not there. And you have all the thrills and spills of the family roller coaster ride all the way through life. So we're not looking for perfect marriages or perfect parenting or perfect children in the families of elders. No, what we're looking for here is that stability of life in the head of the family who takes his role seriously. We're looking for the kind of men who are committed, as we've seen already, to loving their wives and raising their children in such a way that they take their lead from him. Have you ever thought about what that means in these verses? To, to see that our children actually respect us, to see that they, what is the word, keep submissive, doesn't mean winning the argument, doesn't mean forcing them to submit, because we're to do it, remember, with gentleness. It means living with the wisdom somehow that invites the confidence of our children so that they know that we have their very best interests at heart, not our egos at heart, not our own personal desires at heart. It means that I have to see to it that, that, that I earn the loving respect of my children, that they trust me to do what's best, not because I'm bigger or louder or have the power to withhold privileges, but because somehow they know that it pleases the Lord and they know that it's for their good and they know that I love them. The emphasis here is on how the husbands and or dads handle the, the joys and the sorrows, the opportunities and the massive challenges 
of family life. That's the making of an elder, Paul says. He actually says we won't know how, verse 5, to take care of the local church if we don't know how to take care of any family that the Lord has given us. Now ask anyone how to manage your family so that that family flourish and are happy, respectful, thankful for your leadership. And if they're honest with you, they'll say that it's like Peter. It's like walking in water. You're floundering. You're sinking. You're crying out for a hand to lift you. And you can do nothing but sink. But then in a moment, there's a change. And you can't quite believe that it's happening. You're managing your household. You're walking on water. And you're crystal clear that the only thing it has to do with you is so that as long as you keep your eyes desperately focused on the Lord, He is making that happen. That's what godly men do in the home and in the church. It's otherwise impossible to win the confidence of your family by gentleness. It's impossible to maintain their dignity as verse 4 says we should. Christian men who take this role under God seriously in the home and in the church are not impressed with themselves. They're not taken on with themselves. They don't congratulate themselves on their excellence, on their achievements. They marvel with moist eyes, with punctured pride, with hearts that are bursting with gratitude at what the Lord alone has done in his mercy for them as they look to him and as they continue desperately to look to him as Peter did that day as he began to sink in the water. And in dark, disappointing seasons of life, as we all have, when every instinct tells us to chuck it, just to get away from the pain for a wee while, Godly elders remember that this family is blood-bought. It is God's household. He, as the wonderful hymn says, he will hold us fast. That's how to take care of any family the Lord has given us. That's how to take care of the local church family over whom he may make some men elders by desperately looking to the Lord Jesus without whom we will otherwise flounder and sink. We've thought about the, the transition to the eldership and the task of the eldership and the test for the eldership. Finally, the trap for the elders. As though being an elder wasn't tough enough an assignment because of our own personal weaknesses, because of the overwhelming challenges of family life and of church family life, not only that, but Paul closes now his teaching on the elders by reminding us that we have a spiritual enemy who has us in his sights and is waiting to cheer when we fall and make a total mess of it. You see, the devil knows how precious the church is to the Lord. He shed his blood for his church. And he knows how powerful the household of God can be in a dark and broken world. So Satan's plan is to wreck the local church. And there's lots of ways he can do it. He can do that by convincing most people to settle for mediocrity. 
while letting a, a chosen few live with kind of serious biblical discipleship. He can do it by telling us that as long as we keep up appearances, then all is well, and our inconsistency will never be discovered. That's the most successful way to ruin a church. And so when Paul calls for two Paul calls here for two requirements in our elders to keep us free of the traps for eldership. Number one, maturity in faith. Have a look there at verse six. He must not be, the elder must not be a recent convert. Why? Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. The term is literally, he must not be newly planted. And the reason is not just youthful inexperience or the desire to, to suppress that kind of enthusiasm we have in the early days of the Christian life, not at all. The reason that the elder should not be a new plant in the gospel soil is the danger that it would bring to the young Christian. You see, there's no doubt that it takes time after us becoming followers of the Lord Jesus for our minds to grasp the principle that we live to serve and not to grasp after status. That's not an, a, a, an easy lesson for any of us to learn. Do you remember in, in Mark chapter 9 and 10, we see the disciples fighting over who's the greatest among them. And then James and John going and asking the Lord if they can sit either side of Jesus when he comes into his glory. They're, they're puffed up with conceit. If we see it there with the disciples of Jesus, it's going to be an issue for me. It's going to be an issue for all of us. And the Lord Jesus there in, in Mark 10 with sorrow and disappointment reminds them of his example. He had not come to be served. He'd not come to gain and grasp at status. He'd come to serve. And that difficult concept is absolutely vital for us to grasp. And we learn it, I guess, we learn it in theory. And then through time we begin to learn it in practice. But if someone has only recently turned to Christ and is put into leadership, Paul says the danger is that they themselves may become conceited. They may become proud of themselves. And interestingly, Paul says that's what happened to Satan and he was expelled. So in identifying elders, we're to look not for a newly saved man, but for one of more mature faith. Someone who has had time to let the gospel rough him up and rub him out and remake him. Now this doesn't mean a young man can't serve as an elder. He can if that maturity of faith is in place. Timothy himself was a younger man. Paul encouraged them in this very letter, chapter 4 verse 12, to let no one despise him for his youth. But he was to be an example of a maturity of faith. He was to be an example of to the other believers in, in speech, in conduct, in love and faith and purity. These are the work of the Holy Spirit in us and the evidence of maturity of faith. Second thing that prevents us falling into the trap is maturity of faith, consistency of life. We saw earlier, didn't we, in, in verse 2, that Paul calls for the elders to be men who are above reproach. It means that, they, that, that, that as people look at the man's life, they see no obvious contradictions to, no obvious denials of the fact that he is a follower of the Lord Jesus. It means that he lives a life of stability. And that, that is what the other aspects of the, this passage we've looked at today point at. And now take, Paul takes the matter of 
reputation beyond the realms of the local church where he is to be above reproach and he says here in verse 7 moreover the elder must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil and this is the snare that the devil sets it isn't just that he keeps people well away from the Lord and the gospel and the church altogether he does that obviously but in a sense it's a much more devastating snare that he sets when he persuades us that I can be when required Sunday Creek and the rest of the time I can be good old Monday to Friday or Saturday Creek and as long as the two Craigs never meet and the people who know the two Craigs never meet then it's all well and that will destroy Craig and that will destroy the church family he cons integrity is not the same as honesty honesty is telling the truth I had this pointed out to me years ago and it's never left me integrity is being the same one all the way through being the same chief of sinners in whose life God's grace in Christ has overflowed as an example to all who are to believe in him for eternal life as chapter 1 verse 15 to 17 puts it so maturity of life consistent, maturity of faith consistency of life are the hallmarks of the Christian man who is to be considered for eldership there is an enemy he set his trap we are by nature very prone to fall into it. but this is how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household this is for all of us so as we close let's go back to verse 1 this saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer he desires a noble task it's been a real privilege to spend time with you in this passage this week in preparation and today in sharing it with you as we close I'm going to read and then pray Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17 I'm going to pray it for the church family at Hamilton and for the elders there and as I do it I'm praying it for the church family at Harper and for the elders there Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17 says this to the church obey your leaders submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that this text has the advantage of the whole church family in view. And 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 to 7 that we've looked at morning and evening today has the advantage of the whole church family, the whole household of faith in view. It has the advantage of the eternal souls of hundreds of thousands of men and women who live around us in view so please help us as church families to understand that those who those men who are appointed to eldership are keeping watch over our souls help us to understand that they're going to give an account so help us lovingly to obey the, uh, them as our leaders, to submit to them. That they may keep watch 
with joy and not with groaning, that it will be an advantage to them and an advantage to us. We pray for Nathan, again for Robbie, for Kenny, for Jonathan, for others that you may bring to the eldership at Hamilton. We pray for young men growing up that they will aspire to this work, that they will say that is something worth giving your life to. That is not trivial. That is not foolish. Please bless this word to all of our hearts for the glory of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, we pray. And in his precious name. Amen.